Hey everybody, Todd Mitchell here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown. This time we're talking to my friend Shami Muhammad, who I met over on the Swell app, which is a new social media app. We are just two technology-loving folks who uh, ran into each other on a new, uh, a new website. But imagine my luck running into somebody saying I run a podcast about game development, and he says, you know... I've been a game developer about 20 years. I've worked at Microsoft, I've been an indie, and I've worked at Tesla. <laughs> I said, please come on this podcast, and that's exactly what happened. So Shami's going to entertain us with stories that, uh, I mean, who else could we hear this stuff from? So uh, very cool. I won't hold us up. Let's get to it. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast. Brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Whoa, boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was blue than a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the cold world, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. That arcade was my church. I thought I was Rastan. Hey, can you hear me? Hey, yeah, I can hear you. Hold on, let me stop my video. There. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Thanks for calling. Oh, no. Anytime. I mean, no problem. What are you up to this morning? Are you working today? Yeah, I'm working. I'm definitely working. Sure. I do think it's very cool you're working at Tesla. How long has that been going on? It's been uh, two years, actually. Two years. Two years. So that's that's a while. That's pretty good. How are you liking it? Oh, I love it. I mean, like, uh, from uh, having been in the industry for 20 years and uh, uh, Turn 10 was a great place. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Tesla's quite something and uh, Elon's uh, kind of mentality is like, you know, uh, comes down in, into the culture of Tesla. It's all about really uh, moving fast and getting things done really and uh, removing any bureaucracy in the way. It's, uh, it's unbelievable about how he's uh, religious about that. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why Tesla is like being able to achieve so much. Can you answer this? Have you gotten to meet Elon? Uh, no, I haven't. I can't answer. I can't answer that. I haven't gotten to meet Elon. Uh, I came pretty close though. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, meeting Elon's like a double-edged sword. <laughs> I mean, like he's, uh, I'm a big fanboy, you can say. And that's one of the reasons why I joined Tesla. Uh, but then I'm always so worried that I might say the wrong thing in front of him <laughs> and I might be a starstruck sometimes. Right. I mean, like, so I don't know <laughs> if I want to meet him or not. One part of me wants desperately to meet him. One part of me is like, oh, hold off on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you've worked at Microsoft too. So you've, this is probably not the first time you've sort of had those thoughts. Microsoft was a much bigger organization and also a lot more, um, uh, it's not as flat as Tesla. That's the uh, way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I'm two away from Elon, right? So in, in the reporting hierarchy and not because I'm high up. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm an individual contributor. That's the way Elon likes it. Uh, two or three. Uh, I mean, my, uh, my manager is two away from Elon to be precise. So I'm three away from Elon. Yeah. Still, that's pretty fantastic for such a well-known organization. That's pretty great. Yeah. So uh, the, the, I think that this I can talk about is like one of the things why Tesla is so cool is like, um, Usually, uh, when things need to be done, uh, Elon directly reaches out to my manager, and uh, he tells uh, my manager, uh, 
can you do this? Or he'll usually forward a tweet. And then uh, my manager will like forward that email to me and say, like, can we get this done? And that's, so, that's the order of operations uh, compared to something else where like, you know, you have all these layers in the middle, you got to get approval or like, you know, it comes through a whole chain of command. And by the time the message is distorted or what needs to be done and there's people in the middle wanting their own agenda, uh-huh. none of that, right? It's, it's like Elon just says like, I need this done. Or literally he'll sometimes forward like, this customer is asking for this from a tweet, right? And he'd say like, can we get this done? <laughs> and one of the reasons I didn't want to meet Elon is once you meet Elon, you're almost on a one-to-one basis. He will skip my manager and he'll directly reach out to me. I <laughs> you don't want to be there, actually. <laughs> I wondered about that. I wondered if you meet him, is he one of those guys who will go, hey, I know somebody who I can you know, <laughs> hit up yes, about this? He, he does not believe in bureaucracy, right? I mean, like all of that. And uh, it's a beautiful place to be if you're like really into tech and really want, I mean, like usually you hear this uh, same story in uh, even creative industry, like games industry, is the suits versus the creatives, right? Right. They, they always have this tension amongst them. And uh, if you're like in the creative or you're a tech person, this is a great place to be because you just get stuff done and it's not none of those extra craft is there. I love that agility in an organization. That's really nice because it's very hard to find. People say they're agile and that just means a different collection of bureaucratic practices they have, you know. And that is another thing that I find uh, very impressive about Tesla is like all my, uh, I mean, like throughout my game, uh, game dev career, we've all just been um, pushed towards uh, agile. They've been striving yeah. to uh, adopt agile. It's, it's a new in thing, right? And um we, uh, everybody does their scrum, they do. And what I've seen is all the optics of Agile get uh, carried out. We do the stand-up, we, uh, we do the whole Kanban board, we move our stickies from slot to slot in the Kanban board and all of that. Uh, but eventually it always boils down to a waterfall kind of release schedule because that's mm. what eventually it is. In Tesla, we don't do any of the optics, none of that. It's just people uh, just go do, every, but everything flows like Agile and we have Agile results. <laughs> we, yeah. release, uh, we release uh, uh, an update almost every month, and uh, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Uh, something that interested me about you, uh, for, for anyone curious, we, we connected on the app Swell, uh, mm-hmm. and you found that because you're, you're just a genuinely technologically interested guy. Like You seem to keep up with technology anywhere you can, so you were checking out this new app, and I did the same, and we found each other there. So, I mean, how are you liking Swell so far? Yeah, I love Swell. Uh, a small thing about Swell, uh, one of the founders of Swell is a very close, good, good friend of mine, and that was one of the reasons why I got on Swell really early on. Yeah. In fact, I was there on uh, day one when they went public, I think. Yeah, and that was – but uh, otherwise also, I'm, 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 I'm usually curious, and I usually check out stuff, like you said. Yeah. Lately, I've had massive dis- uh, mistrust in uh, social apps, mm-hmm. and I – steer clear of social apps uh, uh, and have been trying so hard to like not uh, get engaged uh, excessively in social apps because uh, I've found over the course of years uh, them to be more detrimental to just not my life, but like, you know, in general, overall. And uh, out of principle, I usually don't, but swell because it was a founder of, uh, my, the friend was a founder. I kind of went in to check it out. But what I was really surprised by and what I really like about swell is um uh, there is a level of authenticity when we talk. I mean, like right now we are talking, you can, there's so much in the way I express my words 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that comes across quite clearly in swell. And uh, what it ends up re- doing is it removes a layer of anonymity from the person engaging in the conversation. And I think that is uh, very important in internet culture because I think that anonymity is what like uh, fuels trolls and yeah. uh, all the negative negativity out there. Uh, even uh, all the, um, I mean, like, it's, it's a great platform. We have had some political discourse conversations and everything. When people from the right wing come, uh, I notice that they at least are a lot more tempered down or like, you know, <laughs> because it's their voice. I mean, like, they're not being uh, that negative overall. It's, it's very easy to type something with your fingers where your name's not even attached, you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I've, I've noticed that too. Uh, I haven't been on Swell for more than a couple of weeks, but already um, I found it because they contacted me and said, hey, we think this would be great for podcasters. I agree with that. I think it's, I don't know if it fits the lifestyle of some people who are, you know, working full time in an office place. It's hard to listen. It's hard to record. But for somebody interested in audience engagement on a podcast or maybe streamers or things like that, there are a lot of people who could really make great use of Swell. So, um, yeah, I'm not affiliated in any way. I just happen to like the app a lot. Uh, and I was I was glad I ran into you because you have uh, a fascinating career going on. Uh, I think you're perfect for my audience. And I'm interested in hearing a lot more about it. Um, I mean, how did you first get into technology in general? You're clearly a technology fan. I want to hear about that. I guess growing up, uh, my introduction to computers was uh, uh, in 1983. My dad got me a, I don't know if you remember uh, the Timex Sinclair. Yeah, I know about the Sinclair, yeah. Yes, yeah. So the Sinclair Spectrum from the, uh, so the original version of it, the ZX Spectrum, my dad got me that computer and uh, that's where it started uh, so mostly it was games initially. I was like, wow, this is a, a replacement for my 2600. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then uh, I spent five minutes loading up each game and I was like, oh, not so. But then I quickly realized uh, the power and like uh, what uh, the power of software was. And I also started programming a bit in basic and I uh, ta- uh, learned some basic and everything. And clearly uh, the amount of time I spent with it and how fascinated I was with it uh, uh, let me, I mean, like, uh, I didn't realize it then, but I knew I wanted to, uh, I mean, like, I, I was totally, like, uh, drawn in towards technology at that point. Uh, interesting uh, side note, uh, I was so drawn in into video games and the art of uh, video game programming at that time, and not because I practiced the art of video game programming, but I, uh, in a weird way, I kind of uh, idolized all the then video game programmers. They were mm-hmm. all indies at that time, right? Sure. Video game programming in the 80s were all, was all indies, and you had these publishers who uh, hire out these indies to write games for them. I kind of uh, idolized them in some form or the other. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, I thought it's so cool that they could make the computer do all these cool things. Yeah. And uh, that's, I said, I want to be a video game programmer. And it, it, I was very specific about that. <laughs> how, how old were you when you started programming? 12 or 13. But I, I didn't do much like intense programming at that point. It, yeah. it was very hard to come by good resources, right? The internet wasn't there. So it was That's what true. I could get my hands on. Yeah. And uh, I did everything in basic and I really desperately wanted to do machine code, as they said, which is assembler, Z80 assembler. Right. Um, uh, I think I got a book, but I didn't have, uh, I mean, like I tried reading, I, I just like, went through a bit of reading into it and it, it it demanded a lot more time than I had at that point. It was high school too. 
So I didn't really, and I, I, that was like, I wish I could have done that because that's where all the cool games were written. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a brutal way to get started too with assembly. <laughs> yes, exactly, right? <laughs> I was I was a little luckier. Uh, we had Visual Basic by the time I was late in high school and they offered programming classes. So Visual Basic is a nice, very simple way to get in. And that was a lot better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Basic is definitely a much, and I, I really enjoyed the basic bit. Yeah, yeah. So from there, uh, this became a focus for you in college, right? I have an even more interesting career as a matter of fact. Okay. <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> I wasn't really great in academics. Uh, I'm one of those guys uh, who knows the subject matter, but is a very bad test taker. Oh, okay. Uh, so that, that's the way I'd like to summarize myself. And so I, I, I didn't come out of high school with uh, with great grades and um, I obviously didn't make it it was a it's a hyper competitive environment in India and uh, I didn't make it into any of the um, universities by merit so I, then I kind of pivoted and I uh, pursued a career in uh, flight training I wanted to be a, be a pilot because uh, there seemed like a lot of uh, good opportunities in India at that point Oh. And uh, I came to the U.S. and uh, in Texas, I learned, uh, I went to flight school, I got my commercial pilot's license, went back and try, tried desperately to get, get into the airline industry. What happened was uh, when I got in, when I chose this as a career, the supply demand was uh, such that there were a lot of jobs and it looked like a good, uh, good thing to go and get into. And uh, a lot of people thought like I did. <laughs> and then by the time I returned, the supply demand curve in, <laughs> got inverted. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more pilots, fewer jobs. Yeah. And uh, so I was desperately trying to do that. While I always had this uh, affinity towards technology, uh, I got a computer at home and I was like fiddling around everything. And uh, my dad was very uncomfortable that my career wasn't going anywhere. He's like, maybe you should uh, go to school. And so I started pursuing uh, proper uh, engineering sc uh, school. And then naturally, I leaned towards engineering. I came to uh, Boston where I did my uh, computer systems engineering. And uh, that's uh, how things uh, ended up. I didn't really know how that worked in, in India. It's it's more competitive the way we would compete over like opportunities to go into like med school, stuff like that. It's kind of more everything. Well, I mean, like um, in India, there is a, there are a lot of uh, institutions. You can you can get into a private institution, but eventually, uh, like I guess everywhere, uh, it's kind of become a business. So uh, you you end up having to uh, pay a lot of money to get in into something. They call it uh, the cap. They used to call it the capitation fee, which is like basically uh, uh, a big donation to get mm -hmm. yourself in. Uh, I guess we could have afforded to get into one of those, and I think that's one of the best decisions my dad ever uh, made. Was he said you did not get in on merit? I'm not going to support you to get mm -hmm. in. So yeah. he kind of made me, he said, like, uh, <laughs> pick yourself up by the bootstraps, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that was a very good decision on his, because I would have wanted to continue on with the computer. And that kind of made me reevaluate my uh, options at that point. Yeah. But uh, the second time I came around, I was more serious. And, you know, I did everything in my power to, like, uh, lift up m myself in those academic uh, parts, right? Yeah, I, I found that interesting because I went to a tech school here and we used textbooks that were uh, written for the uh, National Institute of IT in India. So we were using their their books and that was just uh, something I recalled. 
<laughs> no, but uh, one thing about India, though, is uh, they have a, it, it's, it's a po- very populous country and hence it's very competitive. And uh, what happened in India is the reason you see a lot of computer uh, folks from India is uh, in India, uh, the middle class over there were really desperately trying. Uh, they, they, they understood the value of education. And there was this whole thing about uh, in, in the middle class, every um, parent was uh, hell-bent on really getting their kid educated uh, and really trying to get them into a professional career. And uh, at that point, when I grew up, it it meant one of two things, essentially. At the top of the list was, one was being a doctor, or the second one was being an engineer, (laughs) period. And computers are still coming up, but still, it was engineer. And it was all about, like, what can you do to really get the best career going ahead? It didn't matter what you were passionate about, you know, all that. It was... That was the, it was a hyper-competitive focus on that. And uh, as a result, like uh, being such a populous country, it was super competitive. And they have these um, amazing uh, government-funded schools called Indian Institute of Technology. I don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, They are far and few, and it's like a super hyper-competitive one single entrance exam for that. And uh, that decides uh, whether who gets, who makes it in. Uh, But their alumni have gone on to do great things. If you look at most of the founders, they've, they've come from uh, IITs all, all around. Uh, my friend Arish, he was a founder. Uh, he, he, sorry, he was uh, an IIT alumni. And a lot of alumni I've seen from coming out of those institutions have gone on to do great things. So it's, I guess it's a good uh, system out there. That's very cool. Uh, you know, working in programming as I have, um, I didn't do game industry stuff as much as I did things like uh, billing and business management software, uh, government contracting. I've I've worked with a ton of people who have family in India, and they all have really inspiring stories. I just feel bad for all the travel that everybody has to do to like stay in touch with the family and everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's uh, it, it's a twenty four hour uh, travel one way. Uh, but I think I call. Uh, Seattle home right now. I mean, like my, most of my life is spent here. And yeah, I do go and see family once in a while. My, my parents also come. But as much as I mean, like uh, a lot of things India has offered, I, I do feel that the United States has offered me a, a much better opportunities. I mean, uh, interesting opportunities. When I was getting into gaming, uh, I would have had nowhere to go in India. Let me put it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. It, was, it wasn't a thing. And uh, I felt uh, the United States uh, offered me uh, all these opportunities. So uh, I whole- wholeheartedly call this my country right now. Well, you're, uh, yeah, you're crushing it here. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> you're licensed as a commercial pilot. Do you still do anything with that? No, I don't, unfortunately. And it's been one of my biggest, uh, what do you call, uh, I, I really yearn to fly again. Yeah. I think uh, I, I after I started, uh, so... My, te- my uh, professional career started in Microsoft after school. And initially, I started getting back into flying. and uh, But then, I guess, uh, I hit my first release, and uh, it demanded a lot of time from me. Yeah. I was working in Carta Encyclopedia at that time. And, yeah, I, I just dropped it at that point. And also, uh, 9-11 happened. And uh, I'm actually, it, my name is Muslim, and I, I was born a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm not necessarily a uh, practicing Muslim, but I was born a Muslim. And I, I felt at that point it was uh, best. I didn't want to draw unnecessary attention and unnecessary, what do you call, unwanted scrutiny Yeah. after the Patriot Act was 
that created and everything. That's like, you know what, let me just <laughs> lay low on that aspect. I don't want to unnecessarily uh, get attention. Yeah, I, I'm sure I would have done the same thing. That makes a ton of sense. You would have been so perfect for uh, Flight Simulator, but I, I know that title has moved around from studio to studio outside Microsoft, but it's a shame you haven't worked on that. I, uh, interestingly, uh, tried to get in a couple of times to into Flight Simulator, and uh, uh, things haven't uh, just worked out. Uh, the first time uh, they got some, I guess they didn't, they found someone better or I didn't make it at that time. And the second time uh, they wanted me for another role and I wasn't interested uh, because yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting thing because having my flying background, it was uh, a natural fit over there. Yeah. They were actually uh, downstairs in, in, in the building I was working on. I was working on Xbox sports at that time. Right. Yeah. I, I, I knew a lot of those guys. Yeah. So I know you have uh, credits on NFL Fever, NHL Rivals. I mean, how did you move from Encarta to games? Was that sort of seamless? Oh, yeah. So uh, when I, uh, I wanted to get into games and graphics, graphics was something that I really loved at that time. And coming out of college, uh, Microsoft paired me up with uh, Encarta. The college recruiting paired me up with Encarta and Microsoft Money, of all things. Oh. Those were the two, two things that I interviewed for. And, uh, and Carter seemed like the better one. And uh, being, um, not having, I mean, I was trying to get uh, my uh, H1B and all of that. And Microsoft seemed like the best bet to uh, get a green card and all of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I didn't uh, pursue a career with other game companies. Uh, when Microsoft came up with the offer and I said, all right, let me uh, take this. And Encarta Encyclopedia, honestly, was very uh interesting and it really intrigued me they had enough multimedia aspects and it was very um, i really enjoyed working on encarta encyclopedia because a lot of times you'd be working on it and you'd come across an article like they'd say hey there's a bug on this article or something you'll go in like you'll try to uh, figure that bug out and then inadvertently i'd spend i'd spend the next half an hour reading that article and then taking links <laughs> and <laughs> it's like you know being on the web right yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, very enriching it was also very enriching to know that um I was benefiting kids like, you know, kids really, uh, it, it was such a, it's such a good feeling in the end to have that. But I always wanted to get into games and that's why I tried kind of flight sim and then uh, Xbox came along and yeah. I was trying uh, to see if there, there was an opportunity and uh, an opportunity came about in, uh, because uh, by the time as somebody who hadn't done a lot of game programming, it was hard to get in. Yeah. Uh, and especially I want to do graphics and, uh, the one thing that they kept asking, like, show me your stuff, right? I mean, like, what do you have? I did have some personal projects uh, that I could show, but it wasn't like anything uh, of release quality or like, you know, especially in the graphics world, you want to make something that's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Right. So I wasn't making it, but so, uh, and in Encarta, what happened was I was uh, specializing in just uh, user interface, right? A lot of uh, UX and user interface. And so a UI position opened up in NFL Fever, and that seemed like a good opportunity. And that's when I said, like, all right, let me try out and uh, was able to get in, uh, into that. And uh, that's how I kind of got in. And interestingly, I got, I became the UI guy. And uh, mm -hmm. as much as I fought it and tried to get into graphics, my strength was in UX and UI. I, and a lot of designers have approached me and said, you have a, an innate uh, ability to make good UI and good UI design. So I kind of uh, eventually ended up uh, 
playing to my strengths and doubling down. And uh, that's what I specialize in uh, UI systems for games. <laughs> yeah. And I know that's not always the most attractive thing on your way in, but that's so valuable. We don't have nearly enough naturally talented people in that space. I, I can tell you that much. I think uh, the, the other thing is uh, really, I mean, like uh, far too often, like you, we, we think we know what we want we, and um, uh, it, it's sometimes like it takes another person to really hold a mirror and say like, look, this is what actually you should be because this is, you're good at it. And this is, you know, and I was very grateful to the people who really kind of uh, did that to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I know you also got to do some sort of, um, I don't know if foundational is the right word, but some very important work with the connect. Uh, yeah. So being a UI guy, I, uh, I was kind of naturally drawn to it because, um, when the iPhone came out in 2007, it was a very uh, defining moment for me. <laughs> I uh, tell this uh, story uh, and uh, I didn't realize my passion towards UX uh, until, at that, until that point. Um, I w- uh, by that time, I'd established myself as a pretty good UI developer and I was working in Forza. When the iPhone came out uh, and I first uh, played around with it, I-, I had my mind blown and I couldn't sleep for a couple of days. I was like, how is Apple able to achieve this magical experience? And what is it that they're doing that feel, makes it feel so good? Like, you know, why can't Microsoft do something like that? And I, I couldn't sleep for two, three days, like in terms of, like my thoughts were kept revolving around that. What is it that makes it a better experience? And I started breaking down the experience and like seeing like what it was that really uh, made, uh, made for such a uh, good UX. So obviously I was uh, drawn to it from the, uh, disruption aspect it was essentially what it boiled down to was like they took existing technology that they married it like you know capacitive touch they brought it to a screen from instead of just being on a trackpad they bought capacitive touch which and then they married it with like super low latency and Mm -hmm. uh, they really uh, when everybody was always talking about the back end and giving the system a lot of resources they made it a priority to give the uh, UX or the UI a lot more resources so that it will be the star of the show, right? Yeah. And uh, these things like kind of stuck with me and I, I like kind of like really like held them close. And after I got my first iPhone, I was like really like, what do you call it? Every interaction, I was like taking it apart, saying like, what what makes uh, this feel better? And I under- I was... Uh, fascinated by that whole process of how they disrupted with new technology. And so when Connect came on, I was like, wow, this is the next thing that is going to take us to the next natural, I call it natural user interface. I went from going from controlling a cursor on the screen, right, to mm-hmm. a direct touch. It felt like you removed a layer of indirection in the middle. And so when Connect came along, I said, here is another one of those. Let's remove one more layer. Like, let's connect yourself directly onto the screen. So I really worked. It was my hope that I could work towards uh, uh, making a much more connected, uh, natural user interface. And that's what really drew me to Interconnect. And, and I was a big believer in the Connect because I was, I'm usually an Xbox player first and the other platforms kind of come second for me. And when I was doing .network at that time here in St. Louis, I went to a couple of conferences in the St. Louis area where people were giving presentations on actually developing for Connect, uh, either as a game developer or for other software purposes. And, and it was so much more flexible and, and capable than I even realized, uh, that when I sort of went back home and played with the one connected to my Xbox, 
and tried things like the eventual control you had over the, the home screen, just using your hands and stuff. It's, it's still kind of stuff we're catching up with, with VR now. It's, we're only just getting to that point where we go, you know, if you use no controller at all, just gestures with your hands in front of a camera, you know, can we move this menu to the left and right, let you select something? How does it look? Uh, I think the Kinect was way ahead and never really got a full chance to, to do what it could have done. Yes, the Kinect was way ahead. There, there were some really cool experiences and a lot of things that came out with it. Um, and uh, honestly, what killed it was, um, it might sound negative, but uh, it was bureaucracy in Microsoft. And uh, also, the, um, did, I guess, did not uh, rethink of things from the ground up of how, what needed to be done. Uh, a simple example. Microsoft had gotten um, so much mileage with Xbox and the whole like achievement system, and you know all, every all the cool stuff that they had done with the Xbox uh, live uh, live ID and everything. So one of the things they wanted to really uh, try and get right was uh, face uh, face ID with the Connect. I mean, like basically identifying, tying your user profile with your Connect uh, persona. Right? I mean, like as soon as it sees you, it should log you in automatically and things like that. Right. So obviously the technology wasn't quite there yet. And what they should have done is when it's not quite there yet is uh, really uh, scrapped the idea and said, yeah, that's a great idea, but we, we don't have it right yet. And uh, also like reevaluated on to whom Connect is targeted for, right? The general audience, they're really not worried about like getting a profile sign in or getting that achievement score and all of that. But yet the uh, Xbox team, what they did is uh, they wanted to retrofit all of Kinect's uh, sign-in and everything into their existing sign-in stuff. It bothered them a lot to think that the wrong person could be playing a Kinect game and get an achievement score for someone else. Hmm. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. 
$1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Yeah, and just to... um. One of the things uh, that I did in Connect was I worked on Connectimals. And uh, one of the things that I uh, kind of uh, rebelled over there, uh, did something rebellious, was uh, I know if you're familiar with in consoles, you have certification processes, right? And then you have rules that you cannot, uh, uh, and they will ding you on these certification. One of the certification things was the person controlling needs always to be signed in and all of that thing. So I kind of played a passive-aggressive game where in Connectimals, uh, I removed the sign-in to the up very front when you started the game. You had to sign in, and at that point, we made sure that you know, you're know you signed in with the right ID and all of that. And after that, I said, like, let's throw everything else out. The person who's front and centermost gets to control oh. the game. It's a very simple rule. As a matter of fact, I mean, like, I shouldn't take credit. It was one of my uh, colleagues who actually came up with that. And I kind of went all along with that. And uh, the person front and centermost gets to control that, period. Until today, I don't know, Connectimals is one of the better uh, performing, I mean, like, one of the more magical kind of experiences in Connect. And uh, it's mainly because we removed that hurdle. Kids love it. And uh, when they get frustrated, like, Daddy, I can't control this. Mommy, like, help me with this. The parent can just, like, uh, go in front, right? And then just do something for them and come back. Whereas with other games, as soon as that happens, it says, please sign in. We, we see that you're not the same person. <laughs> and that is what killed Connect if, in a nutshell. I mean, like, not this very specific thing, but these sort of ideas, right, that we had to hold our, uh, I mean, like we have to, we have built this and we need to tie everything from connect onto that. Or like it's, is this whole thing. We have this whole UI that we built for navigating the dashboard and connect needs to be able to control everything in that. And you should be able to control. I mean, there were these hard and fast rules that were set that didn't make any sense. I said like, okay, if it's going to be hard to control that, just allow the user to take the controller finish it and then get come back right yeah they made it necessary for all the games to use uh, uh, to have a controller free experience in the ui which kind of killed it a lot of games struggled with it mm-hmm. yeah and uh, and also i mean like uh, for this ui i don't know if if you notice in vr some of the more successful ui uh, have been the one where they've been able to project your hands into the uh, environment right where you see your hands virtually and you interact directly with that. And that was the uh, approach I was pursuing that. Uh, But the technology wasn't good enough to uh, make the hands look good at that time, right? Or like have not, uh, have the hands be stable enough or there, it was a very different paradigm. There was a lot of like back and forth and uh, the people in Xbox opted to go with the 2D cursor, which uh, in my opinion was the wrong thing to do. And uh, that's what you, that's that's the experience they ended up shipping. And uh, the audience was our judge, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you did you did manage to get Connect Star Wars done, and that seemed like kind of a feat. 
<laughs> before you before you moved on to other games. Yeah, actually, uh, I, uh, I, I uh, none of my work ended up in Star Wars. One, so uh, I was trying to get the uh, cool three D hand stuff that I was talking about in Star Wars. Yeah, I made I made a lot of progress, but we couldn't come through in the end with everything. And uh, in the end, they kind of scrap and ended up scrapping up and went back to a, a traditional cursor model. So I I, I don't have much, <laughs> but I did. Uh, well, let me see. The crawl in Star Wars, that's, what, that's my contribution. You know, the crawl? Yeah. I can, yeah. So uh, in the end, like after I, uh, so a lot of my work got uh, removed, but uh, in the end, I, I was able to contrib- contribute by, by the scrawl, uh, the, the, the crawl, sorry. That's still pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And the, the biggest two names at Microsoft you got to contribute to were you're credited on Halo 4 and Forza, which uh, that's, I mean, you probably have taken several years of my time. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that I'm and sort of lucky that I, uh, I kind of ended up there. Uh, turn 10 is where I really stretch my wings. That's the way I look at it. Uh, I really pushed myself uh, into uncon- more uncomfortable ter- territory. Uh, I, I became... Uh, from a, being a UI developer, I really became a generalist in turn 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, a generalist is probably the best thing you can be in, a, in, in game development because uh, it means you can, no matter what the area is, you can uh, go in and uh, contribute over there. So be it a little bit of graphics, be a little bit of uh, gameplay, uh, anything, right? Uh, networking. So yeah, uh, I, so in turn 10, the... Uh, uh, I had several signature things that I, I've done. Um, are you familiar with the uh, livery editor in Forza? Yes, I have some very popular videos of me using that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you'll make me very happy then. That is my personal baby over there. I love that. Yeah. So uh, in Forza 1, I joined in Forza 2. In Forza 1, they had already done a livery editor. Uh, the UX uh, left a lot to be desired, but uh, they had cracked a lot of... Uh, the designers was a really smart guy over there, Bill DC. He had cracked some of the core aspects of what it means to make such an editor. And then I ran with it, essentially uh, scaling it up in uh, V2 from like 100 layers to 1,000 layers per, per side, which was... and like a lot more like adding in transparency and a whole bunch of other crucial things that we kind of did really like made it take off along with, of course, the social aspect, which is the auction house. If you're, if you're familiar with it, when when did you start playing Forza? Uh, I I probably jumped in right at about motorsport three. I want to say. Oh, my favorite actually. (laughs) I loved it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, we did the auction house in two V two, and then it was a pairing of the auction house. Not only could you create cool designs, you could share it, right? right. And I didn't do the auction house, but then the pairing of both of those was what really uh, made that feature kind of take off. And uh, in V three, I kind of uh, doubled down on the livery editor, uh, making it a lot more, a uh, little more like Photoshop in how you arrange the layers and stuff like that. And I think we just like. It just, uh, it took off beyond our wildest imaginations and especially mine. I think it is one of the most proudest things I've done in my career, that livery editor and, uh, and uh, just seeing the designs that everybody made, like always bring the smile to my face. I was going to say the greatest testament to how great that editor is, is going out and seeing not only the designs people come up with, but you can look at YouTube and watch people as they go through their process. They create content just using that editor. And it's, it's fantastic to watch. Oh yeah, it is. It is. Like I said, we had never in our um, ex- uh, dreams. And uh, I mean, like when, uh, when we had uh, 
introduced in V2, uh, I didn't realize the impact it would have. All the decisions we made weren't like very directed to, we need to make this in, as like the most used feature or anything like that. Hey, here's a feature that people like, how can we make it better? That's all we did. Uh, so we went from 100 layers to uh, uh, 1,000 layers. And it had its pain points, but we kind of made it work eventually. You know, and we, we never realized what that would kind of unlock. And uh, I think two weeks into release, we were seeing these amazing designs. We released in Japan earlier than uh, US and we have seen these amazing designs come out of uh, Japanese, uh, Japan and especially the anime style stuff. Yeah. And uh, the first one was uh, somebody had uh, recreated a photorealistic uh, portrait of a pop star. Hmm. And that was literally the jaw dropping moment of everyone in the studio, literally be like, be like, I don't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I can, uh, I think uh, if I had to pick one day, that I was like uh, on cloud nine in my whole uh, entire uh, video game, a game developer career, it would be that game. And I saw that. Yeah. It was, I can't, I can't express the, the, the emotions I went through that day. <laughs> so, I mean, you, despite bureaucracy and, you know, working for a giant organization, you accomplished a lot at Microsoft, but at some point from there, you decided to spend some time working on the indie side, just doing stuff by yourself. How did that work? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, Microsoft has bureaucracy, but one of the things I really loved about Turn 10 is uh, their studio management was really awesome, and uh, they kind of protected us from the Microsoft bureaucracy. Uh, so I, uh, interesting side note, I've been in and out of Turn 10 multiple times. It's my favorite. It used to be my favorite happy place, and <laughs> it's, the reason it used to be, it still could be, is uh, because I found, I found Tesla, let me put it that way. <laughs> Uh, I, I really enjoyed working there. Uh, eventually, the reason I left was uh, I was totally bought into the whole Microsoft Kool-Aid about like, you know, uh, I saw how awesome they had uh, concocted with the, uh, uh, what they had come up with in terms of the Xbox 360 made by gamers for gamers, right? That was what the Xbox was. Yeah. And uh, by the time we hit Xbox One, what had happened was uh, a lot of the bureaucracy machine had kicked in into the uh, operational lines of Xbox. And it was evident that Xbox One, we were, I mean, like developers used to be a first-class citizen, first-party citizens, uh, developers used to be first-class citizens with uh, Xbox. And that stopped being the case. And all our tools went from being so awesome to really like, what? Right? (laughs) Not that uh, Microsoft has eventually fixed that, but uh, leading up to Xbox One and all the PR snafus and uh, what they positioned Xbox One as, it, it was pretty evident that, you know, Microsoft, the bureaucracy had creeped in into this awesome, like, uh, usually Microsoft is known for doing, getting things right on V3. Usually, if you, I mean, like Windows, it was v, the third version that really they got mm-hmm. it right. Obviously, yeah. you know, they usually had that reputation. Xbox was completely the inverse. They got the first one really right, but well enough. And then the second one, they really nailed it. And they totally uh, blew it on the third one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I didn't really like how the Xbox One was going. And also uh, the bigger, the, uh, the direction given to turn 10, uh, like with Forza Motorsport 5, it was one of the things that was, it was very poorly received on some aspects, even though as beautiful as it was, it was like a gorgeous game. Yeah. Uh, some of the business decisions to uh, add in uh, 
excessive amounts of micropayments and all those things. And it all stemmed by the fact that let's start to milk it, right? Right. And uh, some of those really like didn't sit well with me. I mean, like it, it felt like the suits, it, it's that whole traditional suits versus creatives thing. It felt like, it felt like the suits were creeping in, right? Yeah. And that's when I said, uh, I, st- I started uh, complaining more and more. And my wife was the one, I want to hear you stop complaining or leave Microsoft, right? I mean, like, you know, she, she kind of, she held a really good mirror to me at that point. I said, you know what? Okay, I'll leave it. <laughs> And let me try something on my own. And that's when I, initially I wanted to do educational software, edutainment software for uh, kids because I had my daughter and I, it was so interesting to see her, like uh, what she engaged with, how can I make her engage more with things, etc. Sorry, uh, I just got, yeah. So that was my uh, big attraction towards that. And uh, in indie games, uh, as an indie, when I started out, I had an interesting idea for a piano tutor app, uh, and that's what I was uh, going to start with. I did some research work on that, and then um, Flappy Bird happened. I saw the success of Flappy Bird, yeah, and I was like, I don't believe this, right? And <laughs> and then I thought, like, one thing you have to uh, a lot of people like uh, uh, have a lot of hatred towards Flappy Bird because oh, he just did a simple game and he got away. He was so lucky. But then one thing I realized was uh, it was a really well polished game extremely well polished yep. his choice of uh, 8-bit graphics uh, and how he uh, actually every little thing he did with that game was uh, really well polished and I was like bravo right you, you did a pretty good job and I said like can I recreate that and uh, I <laughs> I started with uh, down that path and so an initial idea was uh, I recalled an old uh, Sinclair Spectrum game I played called Wheelie you ended up going through this maze in this motorcycle and uh, you ended up finding a ghost rider and racing him back. But the core game mechanic that was so awesome in that was the, you had to do wheelies to overcome these bumps, right? Oh. And every time you did a wheelie, it was a very good feeling. Like you just loved, and even with the uh, puny speaker that the Spectrum had, the sound effects and the way the bike felt really gave you a good rush. And yeah. I, to the point that I remembered this years after, right? I mean, like, I still remember the sound goes like, right? And I can, I can relate to that. I'm like, that was a fun experience. Can I? So basically, I was like, I need to get a hook in. And that was the hook I wanted to rely on. And I want to make a 2D sort of wheelie game. And I started prototyping that, white boxing that. And uh, I used Box 2D as a physics engine. And as I was playing around and everything uh, in the white boxing phase, I don't know if you, uh, if you, if probably you, you, you probably heard about this, right? People sure. when they white box some things, uh, they usually have an idea of what they're going to white box it for, uh, but eventually end up uh, disproving themselves and heading pivoting into some other direction because that's what actually, but that's where the fun is, or they find the fun somewhere else. Fun is not always where you think you really know where it is. <laughs> True. That's what kind of happened in this case. I found the fun, I mean, the wheelie was fun. I tuned it, but then I found the fun in really like uh, jumping off ramps and doing like these uh, looping stunts and everything and trying to land the bike. There was a hook over there mm-hmm. that I really liked. And uh, I ended up uh, making that game. That's what, and interestingly, uh, what I thought would take me a month or something like that, because I said, oh, I'm going to just do what Flappy Bird did. I ended up spending more and more time polishing it and making it good. And uh, I ended I think I ended up taking six months or something like that. I ended up writing a really cool engine uh, engine along with that. And all, I mean, like there's a, there's a lot of learnings over there. And I en- ended up 
I'm very proud of the game. It's not very successful uh, in the app store or in the, I mean, like it didn't make me a lot of money, but I think it's still, till today in Apple TV, it, it's around, it keeps entering the top hundred. It's around uh, number 50 or something like that and keeps going back. It comes in and raises the number 50 and then keeps going back. It's big in Apple TV. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but really, that's great. I mean, if you if you found a, a chart to rank on anywhere, that's pretty outstanding, especially for your first time out. I had a very similar experience because when I left commercial software development to go indie, help raise my son, start doing this stuff, I also found a passion for you know stuff that was educational, stuff that would benefit my my kid and hopefully other kids. And I came up with something very simple I wanted to do to sort of help my son go through his ABCs, you know, and Mm -hmm. one month turned into almost exactly six months. And (laughs) I thought it was impressive because I used Lua scripting instead of like unity. But I mean, you really started from the ground up and, and made your own game engine for this. I saw you comment about this somewhere online and I was so impressed by that, particularly that Apple TV example you gave when, you know, when unity would have been, sort of waiting to to launch a new uh, platform to build on, you were able to just get into your own code, put in what you needed, and you're off to the races. Yeah, I think uh, one thing uh, you have to uh, applaud Apple on, uh, are their, their, their developer relations are pretty good, actually. They, they, they do a pretty good job of stringing along their developers. Uh, as a developer uh, developing on that platform, I have, uh, for the most, I have really good, good things to say about them. Uh, they, uh, when they introduced the new Apple TV, uh, they, they said developers can apply for this program. And I applied for, for it right away. And uh, I, I don't know what their qualifying criteria was. Maybe you, should, you needed to have an app already on the App Store or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got selected. And I think a lot of people got selected for that matter, right? And it, was only, it only cost me a dollar. for uh, I paid a dollar and they sent me the dev kit. Wow. Which was like essentially... Uh, release version, uh, Apple TV, with the caveat that I think I might have to return it someday, but they never asked for it back. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I think that's pretty cool. And they, they just like uh, put it out there and porting it was really not that hard. The only, the biggest uh, challenge I had porting it was uh, going from a touchscreen to the uh, trackpad on the uh, remote. So I, I needed a, the focus notion, but then again, I'm the UI guy, n- not a big deal for me. And uh I don't know if you played uh, Apple TV's uh, Motorwheelie really on the Apple TV. Even though I have uh, uh, my own engine, engine and my own UI system, it feels very much like a uh, first-party experience where the I, I stuck to the uh, same uh, uh, UX language that Apple TV prescribed, like how the uh, tiles move and how you move your focus around and everything. Yeah. So maybe so the editors, I guess, like that, <laughs> which is which is which is one of the uh, secrets for uh, developing for mobile is you need to appease the editors and you got to actually do something for their platform. That's true. Yeah. Did you uh, ever do any version of kind of packaging the game engine you made on its own for any other purposes? I uh, I have an agenda in the background <laughs> to do that. Uh, I don't think I can uh, succeed uh, with that uh, until I write an editor for my game engine. My game engine, uh, it's, it's more of a UI engine, actually, because that's my background and that's what I wrote it. That's what I wrote it as. Till to date, I can confidently say that uh, there isn't a good gaming UI solution. All the solutions uh, don't uh, appease what I'm looking for. 
my UI 3D, my UI engine is a true 3D UI engine and uh, it is heavily data-driven and I have uh, some unique ideas with how you can develop UI and uh, script UI in that. So I, I still have hope that someday I might release it, but the biggest uh, hurdle for that is I need a layout tool or like an editor where you can easily. So all the UI in my game has, was literally uh, like, uh, are you familiar with XAML, WPF? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. So my, my UI engine re- resembles very much like XAML, like it's got an XML uh, sort of a markup uh, representation. And uh, everything was handwritten in that. So uh, until I can get a proper uh, editor going, I don't think... Uh, I'll, I'll ever uh, release that. But once that happens, I have ideas. Maybe I might open source it out and release it as uh, something that uh, people can freely use. Uh, but if they're making some really serious money, they need to pay up. I think that's pretty fair enough, right? <laughs> I think that's a fair model that we see every once in a while. And and it's nice to have a project like that on standby. So, I mean, that's pretty good for you. Oh, I, hopefully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so you get started with Tesla and... Mm-hmm. I know that now you're part of the team that brings games to the cars. Mm-hmm. Did you did you start doing that when you first got there? No, uh, I actually uh, <laughs> I joined Tesla to actually uh, make the uh, UI workflow a lot better. That was that was what we were hired to do. Uh, there's uh, me and a uh, uh, bunch of others over here in the Bellevue office. Uh, mm-hmm. We're part of a bigger team in uh, uh, in Palo Alto. Yeah. Uh, we quickly uh, ramped up on Tesla where um, it was a big cultural shock coming into Tesla. In Tesla, uh, people are expected to uh, pretty much uh, be very uh, uh, self-sufficient. I mean, like you, you don't rely on others and you don't go to others. Hey, I need this done. Can you do this? I mean, like it, you don't have a very clear mark boundary of this is your specialty and this is my specialty. And it took me a while to get used to it. Long story short, we, we just like, and also the other thing is Tesla is really agile. And p- part of agile is really uh, about changing your focus and pivoting as necessary, as soon as, as quickly as possible as to really what the demand is and where you need to be, what you need to release. Right. And uh, Tesla is truly agile from that aspect. And so I didn't end up, joining, uh, doing what I ended up uh, joining for. And at some point, we were, at that point, Tesla had just released the um, Atari games. I don't know if you're familiar with the history with Tesla. They started with by releasing, uh, taking a bunch of Atari games, Missile Command, uh, what was it? Missile Command, Centipede, <laughs> and uh, other uh, the likes of other games. And they just like put it in MAME and they just ported it over to the system. And uh, they had uh, an experience that wasn't like really uh, good. It was a window in a way, it was in a smaller window and the uh, touch controls were very uh, uh, janky, (laughs) if I may say so. So at some point, uh, my boss asked me to go in and uh, asked me to uh, bring in more games and see if I could uh, make it less janky. And that was my first, that was the first thing that was uh, given to me. And uh, what ended up happening was uh, the menu itself was very janky. And I, have you uh, seen much of the uh, uh, games experiences from Tesla? No, I haven't. Okay. So uh, in those days, I mean, like earlier we had Easter egg tray, which is like, you know, you have to approach it like an Easter egg. When the about box, you can slide it down and then it reveals all these cool things you can do with the car. And one of them was this uh, main game uh, emulator. And then you, you put that and it opens up a window and it looks like an arcade cabinet. And within the arcade cabinet, you had uh, 
the game and then there was a drop down and you picked which game you wanted in the drop down and changed it's not very gamey right uh, games mm-hmm. in games you require a lot more pizzazz and it's a very different approach completely or you, even for that matter it wasn't a first class experience even from uh, an app launcher standpoint so one of the first things i did was i uh, made a really nice app launcher where i brought in all the logos of the games that were there whether it was asteroids or uh, missile command you know i got i went i went back i got the original logos got those in there put them in a really nice list that was a lot more attractive and like you know made it, again i mean this is i brought in all my experience with good you with yeah. making good ux into the into that into that and made a much better really uh, a much better first class experience about with the launcher for these and made them made the screens full screen and also solved the problem of the reason they didn't want to go full screen was they didn't want people to get stuck in the full screen and figure out how <laughs> to change games or get out of it and so i made a little menu bar on top that was very clear how you could exit on top like with an x or like a small uh, hamburger menu that that kind of like took you back to the menu launcher and so little things right very straightforward things that you could do but the uh, it really improved the experience having seen that at that point my um uh, we, we, we elon wanted games in the cars and we were like what do we do how do we go about this and everything and at some point somebody we were like we should do 2048 and things like that but at some point we were discussing i was in palo alto at that time visiting and my boss just somebody was telling him you know what we should do 2048 it's so easy somebody can i can do 2048 in a couple of days or we should <laughs> get somebody to do blah blah and my boss just turned to me and said all right shami i want you to do 2048 <laughs> right he just and i said are you serious right because at that till then we were we didn't have a co- concept of first party games or anything like that i said are you serious and he's like yeah serious and uh, i went and uh, i made 2048 and uh, we released 2048 and 2048 being 2048 is uh what you call has mass appeal and uh, was very successful i do love 2048 <laughs> uh yeah i love, i i spent a lot of time in 2048 so it was natural for me to like you know yeah it was yeah i can go ahead and do it initially i did uh, tried getting things done the tesla way where we go and look to see what is the quickest way to get it done is there an existing open source project and what's the best way and uh, i deemed that it was quickest to for me to write than port over something So I I wrote it uh it, it didn't take me that long so 2048 is pretty simple and uh that's how uh the first party gaming division of Tesla was born and uh I am the uh, <laughs> I am the main uh, guy uh, doing that right now if you ask me my job my job is first party uh, uh interactive entertainment in Tesla that's what I do Gotcha So how many games are there total now Ah how many games uh, i don't know the exact number uh we have like i think around 5 uh, to 6 uh, main games and after that we've been releasing some games regularly uh so i, I released uh from just the board games aspect we released uh, 2048 uh then chess then uh, backgammon those were all the uh, board games first party board games and then going to third party um or second party we had uh, beach buggy racing it's an ios uh, game that's very much like mario kart we released that uh followed by cuphead uh oh, because yeah. We, yeah it's a brutal game but uh <laughs> we, we did release that and uh, we got it running at 60 frames a second uh and you can control it by the controller uh in the car then uh, we had stardew valley uh, oh, i didn't know that yeah then we have uh, fallout uh, shelter and mm. yeah i think yeah those are the games yeah that's it pretty much 
we're always looking at uh, other games and seeing like what we can bring in and uh, yeah I, beyond that I can't talk much about what what's in store but uh, yeah Elon is a big uh, gamer uh, he's a gamer he likes to see games and uh, the other thing is uh, we're really looking we look at Tesla as when the car starts driving by itself we want to cover all bases which is uh, productivity creativity and uh, entertainment and within entertainment, there is like, what do you call it? The streaming entertainment. And then there's interactive entertainment. Yeah. yeah. Well, what started as a very small little demo seems like it uh, expanded into, into something great. So that's very cool. Yeah. Back on the indie side, is there anything else you want to, you know, sort of work on or accomplish in the near future on that side? You know, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I have uh, an update to Moto Wheelie, which has a lot more like a, a more structured handheld level release. I mean, but I made Moto Wheelie, uh, the game that, uh, that I had. I made it a game for myself. And uh, uh, one of the things, as much as I'm uh, a game developer, I'm not a serious gamer. Uh, I don't, I, I like the simple, I used to love the simplicity of games in the 80s and the olden days. Sure. Uh, but one of my favorite games used to be uh, Arkanoid, for example, right? Mm. I love the simplicity. I, I like all the remixes that they bring in and like really, uh, but I think that, I find the elegance of building something simple, right? And just like making it be, having it be a hit really, I find uh, that a lot more appealing. And I built Moto Wheelie for myself from that standpoint, right? And what I've come to realize from uh, all the telemetry I've gotten and from all the feedback I've gotten is people want more. They want more content. They want more, uh, what do you call, uh, they, want, uh, they, they want to be taken to the next level. And so that's what I've been working on. Uh, I have it almost working. Uh, as a matter of fact, the game is almost complete. I should be saying it's got like a lot of levels that where you have to like where you're expected to uh, like. Uh, it's basically think of it as a checkbox of a lot of levels that you can just uh, progression. Right? You have yeah. a lot more progression. It gets harder, and you have very uh, more um, handcrafted uh, achievements or things that you have to do. Unfortunately, it takes a lot of time to tune 33 levels and like really <laughs> like tune them and. I've never gotten around to them. It's almost done. Uh, and with that, like I also have like a kind of an in-app purchase kind of scheme because advertising might not really. Uh, and I've been kind of like sitting on it for the longest time. And uh, I, I hope at some point I can uh, release that. I have three other projects that I kind of started uh, that are gone past the white boxing phase and that are pretty uh, compelling actually. And uh, again, uh, as an indie, it takes a lot of time and effort and if my feeling as a, if there's a feeling for me as a startup is uh, I haven't figured out uh, building a team and that's where I need to really grow I need to build a team I need to team up with others and get others I have uh, what do you call had people work on Motobili to help me out uh, on a contract basis yes I've, I've kind of been successful but I really need to build a team that would stick around with a uh, a project and really like work on, on that. I think that's, that's what I need to uh, achieve my next goal. Nice. So you got, you got a plan laid out. I like that. So is there anywhere uh, people can follow what you do online or are you active on Twitter or anything like that? My handle on Twitter is at Shamabeth, S-H-A-M-M-A-B-E-T-H. My uh, website is ngt.com, I think. That's the name of my company, I-N-J-I-T-I. If anything, if, if, you, uh, if you're giving me the opportunity to plug, is that what this is? <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I would uh, ask them to uh, try out my, uh, 
uh, game uh, Moto Wheelie. Uh, you can go to motowheelie.com, M-O-T-O-W-H-E-L-I-E.com. You can go there and uh, it'll lead you to the uh, download. Uh, it's only available on iOS. I have an Android version, but I, I haven't gotten around to releasing it. I was hoping I would release the uh, updated version. Uh, if I get around to it, it'll be great. But uh, please do download that. Try it out. You might enjoy <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for entertaining us with these stories and such. I know people will enjoy this and uh, we'll look forward to checking back in with you after the next couple of uh, phases and see what you're up to. Hey, Todd, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity and like really uh, allowing me to talk about all of this. Uh, It was really nice. Pleasure's all mine. Congratulations on your game dev breakdown, whatever that is. Sounds idiotic to me.